we've spent four full days and nights together on this retreat. And there's the sense of a lot of good work that has been done. And it is work. Yes, one is learning how to truly go on holiday, holy day. Yes, one is learning how to cultivate a pleasing, abiding here and now that doesn't exploit, harm anyone. But in the process of doing that or striving to do that, we meet, meet ourselves, meet our world as it's manifesting moment to moment in this body, this mind, through form, feeling, perception, volition, moments of knowing through consciousness. And that's challenging. I think Ajahn Chah once said it's, uh, you know, some people sit back and think, oh, those guys sitting on their butt. world's going up in flames and up there in somewhere in Massachusetts they're just sitting on their butt. <laughs> Everybody has their own way, I guess. But Ajahn Chah once said, well, if it's so easy, he said it's like walking into the eye of a hurricane. Okay, the eye might be peaceful. You got to get there. And it's... And it's the, the winds, the worldly winds, are fierce. And so I feel that this evening, as I started, just feeling, feeling you all, feeling all of us, just feeling hopeful, pleased and hopeful for the world. That, that uh, you know, we might not know it, but we're, we're not... We're processing all this undigested restlessness, undigested unconsciousness, undigested aversion, longing, grief. Transforming that into patience, courage, a sense of humor, the willingness to begin again when it seems we're at a lost cause transforming it into purity. I think I first heard Tanisra use this analogy um, that meditators are like trees. We might just see trees as, you know, lumber, which that's got a function. How much could I give for that? It's a function. Certainly grateful for the wood that's used for that. But trees are also the lungs of this planet. They breathe in our toxins. They breathe in the CO2 and breathe out oxygen. And we as meditators welcome, breathe in, each in our own way, to the best of our ability. But when we get a sense for these ennobling truths, 
when we have the faith and all of us have this or we would not have made we'd have run away the first night we wouldn't be here after four unless somebody chained us there must be some faith in, in some transformative thing happening where we're meeting and breathing in all this stuff and, and breathing out these qualities, these noble qualities that I've mentioned. That not only affects our body, definitely. This room, you feel this room? Through years of practice here, when we come in, it's so, it's become a real consecrated space. It doesn't just stay locked in the room, it's, it's emanating around to this land. Because as we practice, our mind becomes more measureless and we touch our families, our ancestors, beings near and far. So I'd just like to encourage all of us, praise all of us, that you know, this is hard work, but I, I feel deeply that it's so important for us, but for the world. We've been focusing on wisdom, the indriyas, uh, trust or confidence or faith. When, when, when we learn to align with that buddhic nature, aware nature, inner listening nature, then the energy, energy that comes forth as we make the effort to, to cultivate that alignment with mindfulness, cultivating steadiness of heart, and then we've been uh, today focusing a lot on the wisdom, seeing into the changing, uncertain, selfless nature of things. Selfless in the sense that if we claim it as me, it just burns and brings disappointment, frustration, and suffering. It actually doesn't belong, this body doesn't belong to me. I, I can say it's mine, I can be a guardian, but we don't have ultimate control. We've been contemplating that. So this teachings on not self is not some doctrinal view about self. It's to remind us to balance that unconscious clutching with a relinquishment, return it back to nature, the Dharma nature, the mysterious nature of things. So we've been talking about wisdom But actually, you know, and compassion is a different word, makes it sound like a totally different thing, but actually wisdom and com compassion come out of the same source, come out, come out of the same root, are functions of the same, this same mind, this same inner listening. In the bowing in the morning, when we bow to Kuan Yin, that word means the, that which listens to the sounds of the world at ease. That's another way of talking about this buddhic nature, which is wise, listens, but responds. The wisdom and compassion are, are just two words for different responses from this original brightness that is our nature. Even in the four ennobling truths, which are about enlightenment, tasting nibbana, notice what is the gateway? What is the gateway? 
the first ennobling truth is suffering and being willing to open to it. Like the word compassion means to feel with, feel with suffering. We don't open to feel with suffering. So even our own, the great wisdom truths are rooted in the capacity to open to suffering. And that in that process, there is an alleviation of suffering. So the most profound alleviation of suffering is wisdom that shows us when we're trying to find out who we are and find our peace by grasping at some moment, some feeling, some circumstance, that we endlessly are disappointed and endlessly keep striving. So the wisdom of recognizing the suffering that comes from grasping, the wisdom that recognizes the need to let go, that wisdom is deeply compassionate, helps us return to our peaceful nature. But sometimes in our, in our tasting of peace, we still hold residual splitting of the world suffering from grasping, letting go peace. We can kind of associate the suffering with all that stuff out there when we're in contact. It's very important to reflect on this relationship of wisdom and compassion between form and emptiness, the emptiness, the spaciousness that we begin to experience when we let go of this contraction around this is me, this is mine, when we start to notice change. Things coming and going become more aware of the awareness. It's measurelessness start to let go. We get a sense for this empty mind. That's good. It's true. It's important. Looking at that tendency to still split. There's a teaching that the great sage Sri Nirsagadatta gave on this relationship of wisdom and compassion that Tanisha and I found very useful. And it uh, resonates with the Buddha's perspective. Sri Nirsagadatta said, Wisdom says I'm no thing. I'm nothing. No thing. Compassion says I'm everything. Between these two banks, The life of the wise one flows. The life of the awakened one flows. Wisdom says I'm no thing. Oh, I'm a hopeless case. We listen to that feeling. Listen to that thought. Notice the tendency to create ourselves into this thing, this entity. That recognition of that, that letting go, wisdom releases us from attachment, contraction, the forms of the world. Compassion says I'm everything. Compassion doesn't exclude anything between these two banks. The life of the awakened one flows. The Buddha always talked about the middle way. One function of the mind can let go, but this same mind can also hold on. 
if we just only have this kind of mudra, I mean, that's beautiful mudra when we go into spaciousness. But if the Buddha had stayed in that mudra, we wouldn't be sitting here, I tell you. When Brahma Sahampati, that image of the Brahma God manifesting before the Buddha, what about those with a little dust in their eyes? What about those who are suffering, who are capable of hearing the truth, who could understand what you've realized? What about them? Please turn the wheel of the Dharma for the sake of all those beings, for the sake of us. And that expansive, because the Buddha had let go. Wisdom says, I'm nothing. He saw, he's out there. But that mind responds. The, the heart responds. Its nature is to respond. Because the conditions, the forms, are not ultimately different from the emptiness. They're intermerged, just like the image of the waves and the depth of the sea. They're not separate things part of a non-dual suchness. Language makes things appear separate. We're very hypnotized by our language. And when we're so glued to our attachments of my body, my likes, my dislikes, of course the language at first that the Buddha gives to help give perspective on that is everything's changing. If you grab it, it's going to burn. Not you, not self. That language is to help us let go. Then if we attach to that, we can even attach to the word the deathless. Oh, the deathless. Oh, God. (laughs) Birth and death out there. The deathless. And in our heart, we can, and though that's a beautiful insight, an important insight, it's, it, it is a, a place where we can also get stuck, and meditators can. We need to all be careful. I've seen it in myself. Get to where we just want to go to a place of more ease, and, and the contact stuff is hard. And that's then when the Buddha gave his teachings on kindness. These aren't in some back page mentioned it a couple of times here and there. His teachings are full of that when the heart is open, it responds with kindness, compassion, joy, equanimity. All these are functions of the heart. In his famous teaching on the Sutra on loving kindness, the Metta Sutta, he exhorts us to, to cultivate a heart that looks at all living beings like a mother would her only child, that she would guard with her life. Buddha encourages us to, to recognize that we're brothers and sisters, ancient brothers and sisters in this mysterious experience of birth and death. This knowledge, until we have this kind of insight, this knowledge isn't open to us, but we can, we can just consider it. The Buddha said that actually it's really hard to find someone that hasn't been your mother or your father or your brother or your sister in a past life. 
Language creates me, here, you, there, this, that. But when we start to see the changing nature of language, let go, and we realize this intermeshed, interwoven suchness, and the separateness disappears and merges in to Dhamma. And especially after a retreat, this is our last uh, night of this formal retreat, and naturally uh, the mind will go to where we're going. And let that be part of your, your meditation. Yes, let's enjoy this time. Let's let this retreat die or end mindfully. And when the mind jumps ahead, not to judge that, but just to be interested and reflect on that but also to allow if the sense of your home place or your workplace, if you notice the dread or maybe the anticipation or whatever, remember this kindliness too. I used to get regularly depressed after every retreat. Every retreat I'd get depressed. Not on the retreat, I love the retreat. After the hard work, it was hard work like we do, but then I would go out and someone's expression would be funny and then it, I would uh, start to lose the samadhi, the subtlety, oh, get really depressed. But this is where this teaching on kindness is very helpful. Just remembering to, to welcome. To welcome. And just like in our meditation, trying to get peaceful, if you're trying to get rid of stuff, that doesn't lead to samadhi, to peacefulness. That actually allowing, accepting, listening is very important. These can sound contradictory. Ajahn Chah tells the story many times that if he's um, behind his disciples and they're walking along the road and they, he's behind them, watching over his disciples. And if uh, someone was getting near the left bank in danger of falling into the ditch, Ajahn Chah would say, go right. That person would go right, but the disciples diligently write down, Master says, go right. <laughs> then some of the disciples are getting too near the right ditch. And Ajahn Chah says, go left. And the disciples diligently write down, Master says, go left. And they start arguing. He said this, he said that. And then maybe this Master doesn't know what he's talking about. Let go, not self. Embrace all beings like a mother does her only child who she would guard with her life. This Buddha's got a little confusion going here. Remember, it's about balance, balance. Balance. 
Balance comes from the mindfulness, is the balancing factor. That's where we can sense. When we're really glued to the world, the let go teachings are really helpful. Give us some perspective. When we're averse to things, splitting things off, very important to welcome. It's all about balancing. And some of our deep-rooted habits, and we all, I certainly have them, whoa. Like I say, this path is much harder than I thought. I had some insights pretty early on 30 years ago. But then, you know, certain tendencies, the self-hates or the lusts or the aversions, these pits we drop into, some of them are really deep-rooted, like Tanis was talking about the lines drawn in stone. We can say let go, let go of making a problem, but that calls for a lot of kindly allowing, kindly being with. Metta is called that which softens the heart. Our teacher in the monastery called it peaceful coexisting, not pretending you like everything. Oh, may you be well, and you be well, may all beings be well. I used to kind of think, like a lot of monks, that that's a practice for old ladies. <laughs> I want to go for Nibbana, I want to go for the jhanas, I want to go for meditation. After having been hammered by my tendencies so much, I now realize the profundity, the huge value of this kindliness, but it doesn't, ha- I'm so grateful that our monastic teacher, Ajahn Sumedho, taught us that it doesn't mean we have to pretend to like things, but it's allowing peaceful coexistence, letting everything have its space in consciousness. That really helps, and it is transformative. I really encourage us to remember this as we go home. And yes, any states of stillness and tranquility we've gotten from this hard, beautiful, important work together, that's wonderful, and it's very helpful in knowing that there's a possibility of some ease within simplicity and helping us have the strength then to be able to see clearly into things. But it's also important to balance that with just patience and kindness. The, the image of... Um, the transformative power of kindness that comes back to me again and again was an experience that I had. Um, when I was a monk down, I was a senior monk uh, of a little monastery in southwest England in a province. Is it called a province or county? county called Devon. And uh, I used to go into Exeter prison to see prisoners who wanted to know about meditation. Laverne Prison, and then uh, once I was invited down to Dartmoor Prison, which is out on this wild part in south, in the southwest, in a town called Princetown. And at that time, I think it was quite a high-security prison in the middle of this moor with bogs and things so that the dangerous criminals couldn't go far. Anyway, 
they had some prisoners interested in meditation. It was coming up to the full moon, and that was a celebration of the Buddha's birth, awakening, and uh, passing away, his parinibbana. And so I was invited down uh, to meet with them. But the, it was considered dangerous for prisoners to meet in groups. So um, they weren't allowed. But on that occasion, they were allowed a group of, I don't know how many, seven, eight, were allowed to meet with me. But because it was dangerous, we were, so we had to go through barbed wire and walls for me to get in there. But then I was taken to a room with guards, and then the prisoners were come in, and they didn't normally get to be together. And then there was two guards outside the door. So I'm in my saffron robe, shaved head, and the guards uh, were making fun of me outside the door because they, they thought I was Hare Krishna. So they were saying, how's it going, Harry? Hare, Hare. <laughs> hey, Hare. And, okay, so meanwhile, I'm, I'm practicing my, you know, peaceful coexistence thing. And, and then I start trying to go around and, you know, talk to people about how they are. And, uh, and I think some people had sort of said what they were in for. And, you know, we were talking a little bit. And then when this, this racket was going on outside the door, I said something like, well, let's do some metta practice some kindness practice. And then the guy to my right, Arthur, said, I don't have any metta. If I had the chance, I'd break his neck again. <laughs> <laughs> and so part of me inside thought, well, <laughs> that's a real good start, you know. But I remembered how we had learned. And I said, no, you don't have to pretend to have uh, kindness and compassion. Uh, I said, can you be kind to that conviction that you don't have any kindness, that you don't have any compassion? Can you just allow that, allow that to be there? We don't have to pretend to like these guards. Oh, may they be well. We don't have to pretend that. But let's try not to fight it. Try not to hate it. Try not to harbor and rev up on hatred. Let's just practice allowing. And as we did that, one of the most beautiful meltdowns happened. And while we were sitting there, Arthur started crying. And we, we all were just, just allowing, allowing the mocking. He was with his conviction. He didn't have kindness. And then suddenly there were tears and softness. And we were just there. And it was like we just got big and vast and spacious, just allowing. Allowing, not fighting, not fighting, not fighting. And for those minutes, we weren't in prison. We were in prison, but we weren't imprisoned by the prison. And at those moments, the free guards weren't really free. They were caught up in whatever they were caught up in at that moment, that mocking thing. It was a very beautiful reminder, very beautiful experience. So I don't know where Arthur is now, but may he be well, because he, he saw he had much more softness and kindness than he thought. So can we remember this, this uh, 
balance, looking into. And remember to look into already requires some patience and kindness just to be with. Then as we get more steady, we can focus and look into the thoughts, the moods, the feelings, and practice letting them be, letting them go, and sensing that measureless, measureless, edgeless, boundless, quality of uh, the knowing. But we can also remember that the body within that emptiness of knowing form appears. Our body, this room, this country, this planet, this solar system. When we look into the forms and we see that they're arising and ceasing, arising and ceasing, we see that they're empty of solidity. But when we look into the emptiness, we see that forms arise and cease, arise and cease. Form is not different from emptiness. Emptiness is not different from form. Form itself is emptiness. Avalokiteshvara says in the Heart Sutra, emptiness itself is form. We've been glued only no form when we're stuck to birth and death. We start to practice, get some perspective, and then we get a feeling, a major breakthrough. It's important. I don't want to put it down. A major breakthrough of, uh, of not grasping, just being itself. But wisdom without compassion is not complete. The two go together. That's why in the qualities of the Buddha that I've been going over in the morning, Vijacharana Sampano was one of them. Wisdom, charana is compassionate conduct, activity. The response from wisdom, those two together is, is, is what the Buddha mind is endowed with. This path to the ending of suffering is to be cultivated, what's called the Eightfold Path. We've been focusing on the more samadhi, wisdom aspect. Mindfulness, samadhi, wisdom. But just at least to touch in, and especially as we go home, to remember that If you notice, when we sit down, our meditation practice is not divorced from the rest of our life. As we come here, we have all the echoes and resonances of how we've been speaking, how we've been acting, what our karma is. So the way that we live is very important in in our capacity to experience peace. So actually, these four ennobling truths, they're so important, we, we brought them into this retreat. But Tanisha and I are offering teachings on a five-day retreat that we just touch into, but we give ourselves the rest of this life and beyond to keep cultivating. And to remember that, that, that the Buddha usually offered this teaching after he had already 
taught about the foundation. The foundation of just living in the world with integrity. So I just want to touch on that as we go back to the world. Sometimes one starts with that. We could have the first night said, uh, you know, be generous. The Buddha said so. Be virtuous. The Buddha said it's a good idea. And, uh, but, you know, we've had so much finger-wagging in our lives that sometimes Tanisha and I quite like touching into that near the end of the retreat as we're more sensitive and have already been digesting the echoes from how we've been living. And the Buddha classically taught that, that, the, that, that actually one of the most wonderful foundations to well-being that leads up and builds a foundation for this meditation and insight is to live generously. Because it's the opposite What leads to birth and death? This idea that we can possess. So the idea is that that when there's that flowing, that's beautiful. Like the sun is 93 million miles away, and yet it, it just being itself, sharing. A tiniest sliver of the light that hits this, powers this planet just as its emanation, as its sharing. And its sharing makes it radiant. The Buddha actually taught when we learn to offer our attention, offer our heart into what we're doing, make even our job an offering. Notice when we meditate to try to get peaceful, when we meditate to try to get an insight, when we meditate and try to secure awakening, notice the stress. This is why we've offered the bowing, just as a skillful means to ponder. And I just hope we didn't make any of the devotional practices that we offered things that make people feel too guilty. They're just structures that one can explore. But they're for people to find their own way with. But, for example, one thing I find useful about the bowing is it's a giving of oneself and touching the ground. As an idea, when we relinquish grasping, we go to the ground, the core of suchness of our heart that's listening. There's so many ways to give. Notice what that does. When we're getting, notice the energetic shape is small. Notice what happens when you even just... The Buddha said, if we knew the results of giving, we wouldn't let any meal pass without finding, if anyone was around, someone to share the, a bit of the food with. Because notice it widens us out when we make a, any kind of gift widens us. This, just one of, this idea, there's an important principle that the Buddha taught called, in one of the suttas called the salt crystal. And he, he made a, he said if karma 
if the way that we make karma, that's the way we have to experience its result, he said, then there would be no holy life, no freedom possible. What that means is, that's like the literal eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. If, if I go and uh, punch someone in anger, if karma works so that it means I have to then get punched, if I kick a dog, then I've got to become a dog and get kicked. You know, if it's really that literal, if the way that you make a karma, a creation, that the result has to be that way. The Buddha said there's no result, no way out. He said, though, but if, if the way that our actions make someone feel, in other words, if our karma, unwholesome karma, causes pain, yes, then there needs to be some sort of pain. He said, if we say that, then there still is an escape. There still is a way of ending this endless sangsara of karma. Buddha taught that, why is it that when two people do something similar, do something a little unskillful, it's not that big a deal, a bit unskillful, one of them does something and ends up getting drugged into a terrible state of agony, pain. Another one does something unskillful, and then they immediately experience a result. And it doesn't last for long. It's painful, because they realize it wasn't right, but it doesn't last too long. The Buddha said, why is that, when they both did the same thing? And the Buddha said, for the person who, who went into a really difficult place, got, the Buddha described it as being drugged to hell, they don't cultivate body. They don't cultivate virtue. Don't cultivate generosity. Don't cultivate large-heartedness. Don't cultivate wisdom. They develop with a restrict... They live in a restricted way. I don't know. This is an example. I don't know if it's a very good example. I was thinking if one was in India at some little shop somewhere. Why is it someone maybe in a shop and, and, and uh, picks up an orange, takes it out. The shop owner sees him through a mirror and gets furious and beats the person up. Or someone else might come in and, and pick that up just without thinking, then the shopkeeper sees it and then you say, oh, I can't believe I did that unconscious. Look, I'll buy your whole shelf. I'm really sorry. You know, and there's a little, I don't know if it's, that good of an example, but there's remorse, but it does, it's not, not that big a deal. It doesn't last that long. The Buddha said it's like if you have a little cup of water and there's a lump of salt in it, a crystal, a big crystal. He said, would you be able to drink that water? It would be hard, his disciples said, because it's so unpalatable, it's so salty. He said, but what if you took that lump of salt and put it in, now this is when the Ganges was pure, and you put it in the big flowing Ganges, maybe up near the headwaters. The Buddha said, could you drink it? And, and the disciples said, yes. And he said, in the same way, you know, sometimes when we're contracted, a little thing makes us so upset. But when we have a wider, wider, wider field to dilute that toxicity, that helps transmute the karma. 
All that we've been doing on this retreat is widening the field. Rather than being locked into body, locked into this, creating wisdom, mindfulness, Generosity is another important, important way of widening the field to help dilute difficult states that come. The image that comes to my mind when I think of this is another story. Um, After I mentioned the other night when I was telling the Ajahn Chah story of when I was so sick and Babakro was here that night and and then Ajahn Chah encouraged me. Well, only a few weeks after that, I got typhoid very badly and almost died. And I was sick for years, many years. But I survived. Uh, Pabakro took me on the train when I was delirious down to Bangkok and uh, the residual hospital from Vietnam, our military hospital there, uh, saved me. But anyway, for years I was really sick, and when I was in a monastery in England, really sick for a few years, having to lie down almost all the time, still internal ulceration, bleeding, weakness. One day I looked out the window, and I saw a visitor walking down. It was a cold winter, drizzly day. I saw a visitor walking out the uh, deserted road of the monastery with a rope. And it was, I could see it was in a noose. Uh, and, and, and this fellow had been in prison and he had gotten out, but he had uh, done some abusive things uh, to women. So he wasn't a happy, happy character. But I saw him. I was really weak. But, you know, I mean, I, I see this guy there and there's nobody around. Not feeling very good, but I mean, I just, gee. So I kind of threw a row bone and went downstairs and then tried to follow him into the forest. He was going into a forest, so I came and he was trying to hang himself. So I said something or other, I don't know, trying to talk to him. But meanwhile, I'm so cold that my teeth are chattering. <laughs> like that. And... Uh, in a, and this guy was just in this spiral of contraction. Talk about a little cup with a crystal in it. It's, his life, it all was too difficult. It was just too difficult. It was clear, too difficult. He couldn't even hear me. He was just spiraling down. But at some point, not my words, I don't think, my teeth, <laughs> he, he noticed, he says, your teeth are chattering. <laughs> You're cold. And he, he was a tough guy, had this leather, black leather jacket. He took his jacket off and put it around me. As a gesture, a little gesture of generosity. Connecting, opening up. Flipped him out of that state. Just that, when we make even that sort of gift, then suddenly my, when we make a gift within connected to the field, he then was linked to my, the, my field. Then I hugged him. It was like hugging a porcupine. His energy field was like all oh, these pins. 
must be so painful. Hugged him. But remember this salt crystal principle. Yes, wisdom is, is the ultimate practice, but when sometimes when the, when the toxicity of our self-hatred and our sense of failure and the sense of betrayal and all the difficulties, it's sometimes our sort of wisdom shatters. We can't do it. Then the, the Buddha gave these really useful encouragement. Just even make a gift. Even a, a leaf on a shrine. Or, or the gift of uh, when we give our praise to a measureless quality. We're in a contracted state. It's hopeless, but praising wisdom. Praising compassion. Praising Buddha Dhamma Sangha or whatever of these measureless values in whatever religious tradition or spiritual tradition you feel aligned with. When we do that, we link with that. And that is like throwing that salt crystal in the clear flowing river. It helps dissolve it. Virtue is the same way. The Buddha described living by the precepts as gifts. He called them great gifts. What did he call them? He called the five precepts five gifts that are pristine, of long-standing, traditional, ancient, not despised by the wise ones. Like the first training precept, by abstaining from taking life, one gives to immeasurable beings freedom from fear hostility, oppression. By giving immeasurable beings freedom from fear, hostility, and oppression, he or she themselves will enjoy immeasurable freedom from fear, hostility, and oppression. Did you ever think about that? That when one resolves to try to live with integrity, to try not to harm anyone, that that's actually a gift? To the degree that we are committed to that principle, actually, it is a gift. Because on some level, the beings around us can relax. And when we make that gift, that's, that's this taking... All of these are ways of helping work with these obstructions that come. And it helps us unfold out of this contraction to, to be more merged with our true home, which is, which is in communion with the whole. Not training ourselves to cherish life, try not to harm. Training ourselves to cultivate trustworthiness, not to take what doesn't belong to us. When we, when we commit ourselves to that, we offer immeasurable being, beings freedom from fear, hostility, and oppression. Trying to train ourselves to use our sensuality and sexuality in a way that doesn't exploit ourself or another, that's an offering. And it requires mindfulness because we have to then monitor what we're feeling and just checking. 
training our speech to try to refrain from that which is false or divisive, hostile, or just meaningless. That's an, the Buddha said it's a great gift, an offering. Even training ourselves to refrain from um, intoxicants or, or drugs that the Buddha, this is the Buddha describing what leads to carelessness. This is about on each of us in our own way finding a way to commit ourselves to honoring the instrument of consciousness, the instrument of awakening. In my earlier days, before I became a monk, I had ways of going to Nibbana, just get smashed. And I felt great. But then I came down and found out what I had done yesterday. I couldn't believe it. And some friend of mine said, you drove my Jeep into a lake. <laughs> I did. I think I thought it was funny at the time, but you know, to the instrument of consciousness, to, to each of us in our own way, to find a way to commit ourselves to that, that that is a, like the country where we've lived in Africa, so much violence comes from problems with alcohol. Just to contemplate this as gifts, as way of opening out. Kindness in the same way, way of opening the heart. Contemplation, meditation, and letting go, opening the heart, creating measureless states. Honoring in our devotional practice, remembering, even if we're really, have you noticed, did any of you notice, if you're in a difficult state, that even when we did one of the mantras sometimes and just honored Buddha or wisdom or compassion? Did anybody notice that sometimes at the end of that, the feeling in the room is very different? I sometimes, if I'm in a little state and then I honor the measurelessness, then my little contracted state is being connected to the measureless aspect of being. So I encourage, as I started this evening, I feel Tanisha and I are both honored to be here to offer our perspective. And uh, we don't do it from like we are the ones that know. We're still practicing. We have each of us. I'm sure she can give you a list of my weaknesses. (laughs) But we're committed to keep practicing. And Sangha, that's the value of Sangha, is we help each other remember to keep on going. I encourage you to keep practicing and remembering uh, that not only there's wisdom practice, but there's also kindness practice, generosity practice, uh, devotional practice, which means honoring what our commitment is, however that is right for us. That all this is part of the path leading to the ending of suffering. And this path is taking all of us, little by little, each and every one of us is going to open out of our contraction in our own time into something measureless. And I'll finish with a quote from a, a great Chinese master that taught Tanisha and myself about uh, uh, Kuan Yin. 
in about, uh, and this master before he died uh, gave the land for our Theravada monastery in Northern California. So there was a wonderful link between our Theravada monastery and this Chinese uh, master and his tradition. This master made a statement which to me shows where we're all, what we're all growing into. It goes like this. His name is Master Xunhua. All living beings are my family. The universe is my body. All of space is my university. My name is empty and formless. Kindness, compassion, joy and equanimity are my function. All living beings are my family. The universe is my body. All of space is my university. My name is empty and formless. Kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity are my function. This is our destiny. So let's all take heart. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.